Cuban colleague once told me um, a story that has stayed with me. She was driving one day in San Jose, I think, uh, thinking of many things that we think about as we drive, and she came to a stoplight and stopped the car, and um, she had an astonishing experience just sitting in the car. She felt this amazing presence of God's love just sort of flooding over her and drenching her. And she, she just couldn't quite believe this was happening. And, um, and then the light changed, and, and, and she had to go, and, uh, but she remembered that. It was just an, a real sense of God's presence. And I wanted you to think today of your own experience of the presence of God. Uh, our lessons today talk about that. They talk about the presence of God or an experience of God, some very dramatic and our own may not be quite as overwhelming or dramatic, but I'd like for you just to be aware of God's times when you know God is with you and God is in your life. That, the experience of God is at the heart of our readings today. Uh, our first reading, uh, St. Paul's experience on the road to Damascus, is a dramatic account of such an experience. Paul, who was originally known as Saul, had been an avid persecutor of the Christians, so much so that he had gone to the synagogue in Jerusalem and got letters to the synagogues in Damascus, giving him permission to capture and bind as prisoners the followers of Jesus and take them back to the synagogue in Jerusalem. He was a formidable adversary, and no doubt his, uh, his reputation preceded him. And so Saul was going on his way to Damascus with, you know, uh, hell-bent to, to capture these Christians. And then all of a sudden he has this experience. He's thrown off his horse, and he can't see, and a voice speaks to him and says, Why are you persecuting me? And, and he says, Who are you? And the voice says, I'm Jesus. And now I want you to go into Damascus, and you will know what to do. And so Paul, who had been very bold and... Uh, uh, purposeful is led blind into Damascus, and there he waits. And another Christian follower to whom Jesus had also appeared, Ananias, came to see him. Ananias protested at first, but eventually he did go and did as, as, as he was told and laid his hands on this um, fearsome character, Saul of Tarsus, and um, Saul received the Holy Spirit and became the Apostle Paul, and then began as tirelessly preaching the gospel as he had persecuted the Christians earlier. It's interesting because it is a story of Paul's conversion, and it's told three, two other times in the, in the book of Acts. Each is slightly different, which is interesting. But it is also, this is the story of Paul's commission. He wasn't just told to believe. He wasn't just given an experience in which he could do nothing else but believe, but then he was commissioned to go and be the apostle to the Gentiles. There was work set out for him to do. Our second lesson from uh, the revelation of St. John the Divine tells us of an experience of God, but a very different one. It's John's vision of God in heaven with amazing apocalyptic imagery and set in the midst of, first, of a first Christian liturgy. I certainly thought of Mother Mary and, and Pat Waddell 
when I was um, looking at this particular um, uh, lesson. It's as though we have a glimpse through the door of heaven and we see God enthroned with the four creatures which have become emblems of our, envir- of our evangelists, uh, one of which is Luke, uh, the, the ox that, that is the emblem of Luke. And there are also 24 elders who serve as a choir with harps and incense. And in our lesson, we have the entry and subsequent adoration of the Lamb, a slain but victorious emblem of Christ, who alone is worthy to open the scroll that is held in the right hand of God. And the scroll has seven seals, and it's understood that the seals, that the scroll will be opened gradually, each seal at a time. And it is the scroll that will bring about the end of time when the just will receive their reward and the enemies of God will be avenged. Um, The lamb, by his sacrificial suffering, is alone worthy to open it. So the chorus then widens to include thousands of angels circling the Godhead and the lamb, giving praise and glory in unison. Evelyn Underhill believe that these visions of John give us a glimpse of the liturgies of the early church. And although the fledgling church clearly did not have resources such as we see in this particular uh, vision or we hear of, it's apparent that the flourishing of communal worship came with the developing faith. Uh, It's also interesting, some of you may have attended the Evangelical Lutheran um, Church and worshiped there, and they usually begin with a, a hymn. This is the feast, a cantor will sing, this is the feast of victory for our God, alleluia. And then the congregation comes in with the words, worthy is Christ, the lamb who was slain, whose blood set us free to be people of God. Power and riches, wisdom and strength and honor and blessing and glory are his. And that is all from this lesson that we heard. And that's how the Lutheran churches open their celebration of the Holy Eucharist. And it's really a rich addition to liturgy to evoke John's heavenly vision as part of the Eucharist. And I was so pleased that Betty Ann Olren sang that hymn for for us during communion, as she will do again at 11. John's apocalyptic vision took place on the island of Patmos, just off the coast of Ephesus in what is now Turkey, But before he had gone to Patmos, John had known Jesus in his life on earth and had also witnessed him in the resurrection, as we heard in today's gospel lesson. The story from John's gospel lesson comes at the end of John's gospel and is often considered an epilogue. And it tells of the risen Jesus appearing a third time to the disciples. It's interesting because the third time does not include the time that Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene. It's the third time to the group of disciples, but it is actually the fourth time that Jesus had appeared to his followers. And so this this, um, appearance uh, takes place before dawn by the Sea of Tiberias. And I want you to just try to imagine this setting. It's on a beach where water meets land. And it's at the time of day when night becomes day. It's a threshold, a liminal experience, uh, sort of time out of time, where time stretches to eternity and eternity comes down to a few moments. 
So it's a small group of disciples, but a very important one with some of the key members of the group. There's Peter, a natural leader who is somewhat headstrong and who had denied Jesus, you may recall, three times uh, during the crucifixion. There's Nathaniel, intelligent, a little ironic, who had initially asked, can anything good come out of Nazareth? He's named Nathaniel in the Gospel of John. We think it's the same person who was Bartholomew in the other Gospels. There's also Thomas, the twin, who had insisted on seeing Jesus' wounds before he would acknowledge the resurrection. And there are James and John, sons of Zebedee and Salome, whom Jesus called sons of thunder. Uh, It gives us a sense, a little bit of their personality. It may also refer to their parents. We don't really know what their parents were exactly like. Anyway, it's the same John who many believe to have been the, 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 excuse me, beloved disciple and who is considered the source behind the writings that go under the name of John. After Jesus had appeared among them, Peter announces, I'm going fishing. The other disciples decide to join him. Jesus, apparently unrecognized, waits on the shore. Perhaps Peter remembered when Jesus had first called him and his brother Andrew with the words, follow me and I will make you fishers for others. On this day, for whatever reason, Peter reverts back to his former days, and the other disciples go right along with him. So they all go out in their boat, but they don't catch anything. And as dawn breaks, Jesus calls out and asks if they've had any luck, and they say no. He then suggests that they cast their nets to the right side of the boat, and they do, and they come in with a huge haul of fish reminiscent of another time when Jesus helped them catch a big load of fish. And then when they returned to the shore, they recognized Jesus. It's interesting to think about what just happened. Peter and the other disciples tried to go back to their old lives. Even after the resurrection, they returned to what they knew how to do. It's clear they weren't ready for the new life that Easter had offered I think all of us are like that at times. Even when we clearly have known the presence of God, when we've known that God is with us, we find ourselves going back to our old ways, living by our own designs, trusting in our own old ways of doing things. And then, as with the disciples, it's often then that things go wrong, don't quite go right, and we remember our Lord. It's as if we know Jesus is with us, but we've decided to ignore him for a little while. We, like Peter, are, in effect, going to go fishing. Their behavior shows the disciples were unable to sustain Easter beyond the resurrection appearances. Their belief in the resurrection may have been unquestioned, but it had not yet become translated into their lives and mission. And the problem is still with us. Uh, If you look around the church uh, during services after Easter, uh, the drop in church attendance is significant. (laughs) And so, exactly, low Sunday. And so as we reflect on why Jesus appeared to the disciples a third or fourth time, it seems Jesus appeared because he knew how difficult it is for us 
just as it was in the first century, to really change our lives, to live into Easter. I think Jesus was giving the disciples the time and repeated experience they needed to eventually get the message so that they could go fishing for others and spread the good news. And they did. Peter went to Rome as a missionary. James traveled to the Iberian Peninsula preaching the gospel. Thomas took the gospel to India. And Nathaniel, believed to be Bartholomew in the other gospels, began the church in Armenia. All of them were martyred. Jesus knew they could live out their faith, and he gave them time. And that's also suggested, interestingly, at the end of the second epistle of Peter. Peter didn't write nearly as much as Paul, but he wrote two letters. And the second one at the end says this. With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as with one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is forbearing toward you, not wishing that any should perish. Jesus had lived a human life. He understood human nature and was patient and forgiving. He gave the disciples time to assimilate the good news. He let them try out the old life again so they could be ready and able to leave it. That dawn on the beach between night and day, between earth and sea, could have been one day or a thousand years. The risen Christ was able to stand there and wait. But that was not all. He also had a special message for Peter. He stood beside the charcoal fire, similar to the charcoal fire where Peter had warmed himself when he had denied Jesus during the resurrection. Jesus asked Peter if he loved him. He asked him three times until Peter was pretty exasperated. But it was almost a ritual washing away of those denials. And when he was finished, and Peter understood again who he loved and what he was to do, Jesus repeated his first commandment to him, follow me. He says the same to each one of us. Amen.